0: value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henninger and I'm your host. In today's episode, I'm going to challenge value investing norms by telling you that shorter holding periods are better. This is a first principle that should be a foundation of your understanding of investing. Don't believe me? Listen on to find out why. Before I get started, I want to make a short request. If you gain value from today's content, please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. I produce this show as free educational material without advertising because I believe your time is valuable and advertising distracts from that. Producing this show takes both time and money, and your financial support helps me to continue producing great content for you. You can learn more at diyinvesting.org patron. Patrons receive exclusive access to my private investment research, including a list of the stocks I own and the valuation work that I perform. Thank you for your support. So, shorter holding periods are better as an investing first principle. And just a reminder here so that we understand each other. First principles, when we talked about previously in one of our earlier podcasts, we specifically discussed what first principles are. And first principles are foundational building blocks They're building blocks that you can use to build a strategy, to build ideas, to build understanding. They are the basis for what you understand about the world. And in the context of investing, an investing first principle is a building block for the overall understanding of how investing works, what goes into building a portfolio, what goes into an investing strategy. So the investing first principle is something that is known, something that is truthful, something that you can build a strategy around. Which is why when I say that shorter holding periods are better, you may not fully understand yet what I'm talking about because there's a lot of talk in the investment universe, there's a lot of talk in value investing, all about long-term thinking, all about that you need to be investing for the long term, that there's value in buy and hold, that by using an index and investing for long periods, you're going to have better returns. Well, what I want to propose to you today to really help you understand what I'm talking about because I understand that it might be confusing is I'm going to begin with the hypothetical question. And I think by addressing it in this manner, I'll be able to make sense of why this first principle is important um, but also what its boundary conditions are. So my hypothetical question for you, would you rather earn a 10% return in one year or 10 years. And to clarify, I don't mean compound annual return. I'm not saying that you're earning 10% a year for each of those 10 years. I'm saying you're you're earning 10% total over 10 years. So we're talking about total return, not compound annual return. So would you rather earn a total of 10% return in one year Or in 10 years. Now, what does that mean? It means if you invest $10,000 at the end of the year, you would have $11,000. Or at the end of 10 years, you would have $11,000. So if you invest $10,000 in an investment, would you rather have $11,000 after one year or after 10 years? So when phrased in this manner, I think the answer should be obvious. And the answer is one year. And what that's trying to show is that the shorter the holding period, the better. All else equal, when you're comparing one total return to another, you always want to earn your total return in the shortest time frame possible because that allows you to then make additional investments, and then you can take that return and do other things with it. But if you're only getting a total return of, let's say, 10% over 10 years, then that's not nearly as good as having it after one year and then having nine additional years to make good decisions on. So the crux of my definition then is that when you hold total return constant, you wanna earn that return in the shortest period possible. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, I'm going to immediately jump into my all else equal considerations. If you've been listening to this investing first principles series, you will have heard these in each of these episodes as I discuss the boundary conditions for these first principles. And I'm going straight into this all else equal considerations because there are a lot of them. While shorter holding periods are better, is an investing first principle because it's summarily true. It's Empirically true, and it's intrinsically true, it has a lot of caveats. It has a lot of things that we need to be clear on because there's boundary conditions around it. So I think it's a valuable first principle for you to understand, but I think there's caveats, and that's what I'm going to get into now. And the first caveat that I want to say is very important, and that is that long term thinking is critical for successful investing. So even though I'm talking about a holding period and how long you hold your investments. And again, and again what I'm talking about is if you buy a stock, let's say you buy Coca-Cola, I like to use that in my podcast, and you buy it and you hold it for 1 year. That's the time frame I'm talking about. The holding period of that stock, the time between when you buy it and when you sell it. That's the holding period. So the shorter the better when you're talking about the same total return. But and it's a big but here is that long-term thinking is critical because although you might know inherently that a shorter holding period is better, it's not something you can plan on. So you can't predict in advance what the holding period of your stocks are going to be. Before you make your investment, it is almost impossible for you to know how long you will hold that investment. Now, Obviously, you can make a rule and just say, I'm going to hold this investment for two days and I'm going to sell it two days later no matter what. Well, sure, in that case, you might know that you're going to hold it for two days. Is that what you absolutely are going to do? No, because it might turn out that you're going to end up selling it after one day or you might sell it after 10 days. You don't know. But The key is is that if you want to be a successful investor, long-term thinking is still important. I'm not eliminating long-term thinking. I'm just talking about the holding period that you actually have. And that leads me to the second main point here, which is also critically important. And I began this hypothetical question for clarifying a difference that I wasn't talking about compound annual return. So now I want to, I want to talk about the difference between CAGR or compound annual growth rate and total return. So your compound annual growth rate is what annual return you must earn every year for a period of years in order to achieve a specific total return. So for instance, If my total return is 10% and my holding period is one year, then my compound annual growth rate is also 10%. But if my total return is 10% and my holding period is now 10 years, then my compound annual growth rate is somewhere around approximately 1%. And usually when you, talk, when you hear people talk about what returns you can expect from an investment, what returns you can expect from stocks, returns you can expect from bonds, they're talking about compound annual growth rates. They're not talking about total returns. And that's where I think it's important. So like if they say, okay, stocks can return 6% a year or stocks can return 10% a year, they're saying this is what's going to be happening every year. For instance, if instead of earning 10% for 10 years total, you earn 10% for 10 years in a compound annual manner, you're gonna have your money more than double because it's gonna double in approximately seven years and then it's gonna have an additional three years beyond that to keep growing. So obviously, the whole point of investing is to get, is to harness the power of compounding, to have that ability to grow your investments over time and to earn interest on your interest or to earn dividends on your dividends. So that's why I'm trying to separate that because if the question instead was, would you rather earn a 10% compound annual return for one year or a 10% compound annual return for 10 years, then the correct answer is 10 years because now you're locking in that compound growth rate over a longer period of time and you're eliminating the reinvestment risk that comes about when you have a lower return or when you have that return over a short period of time. So that's really what I'm trying to address here is that we need to separate our thinking between compound returns and total returns. And what I'm talking about in terms of holding period is total returns. So why does that matter? Well, what I just said is that long-term thinking is important, but you can't predict your holding period in advance. And what that means, the reason I say that is, is I once made an investment a few years ago I bought a stock, it had a high dividend yield, the dividend was exceeding 10% a year, and I found that to be very um, attractive as an investment candidate. Well, I held that stock for about three months, and during those three months, the stock price nearly doubled. I think I ended up selling it for somewhere between an 80% and 100% return. Um, I can't remember the exact average return, but I sold it in different stages. But within a three-month period, I held that stock for, and I earned an 80 to 100% total return in three months. Now, if you look at that in a compound annual growth rate, if I was able to keep earning that return, the compound annual growth rate was in the hundreds of percent. But the key part is, is that if I had then held that stock for longer and the stock price hadn't kept going up, then my compound annual growth rate would decline over time as I continued to extend the holding period because my total return wasn't growing. And so I took advantage of the fact that although I had, when I bought the stock, I had intended to hold it for three to five years or longer, when I was expecting to hold it for three to five years, I thought it might double in three to five years. Well, if it doubles, which is what my, investment thesis was based on, and that only takes three months, yes, that's lucky timing, but it also means that the proper investment decision is to sell that stock once it's achieved my investment thesis. And my investment thesis was achieved in a shorter time period. So not only did I achieve my investment thesis, but I did it in a shorter time period. Now, I couldn't control that But it does mean that the shorter holding period was better. So as soon as my investment thesis is complete, it's the right decision to sell the stock so I can now invest that money in other investments and then compound that growth with alternative investments. And that's why I'm really breaking down this because what we need to separate is the idea of buy and hold is not sacrosanct. It's not something that... You should hold. A, you shouldn't hold a stock forever simply because that stock exists. You you know when, just because you plan to buy a stock and hold it forever does not mean you should do so in all circumstances. And I'm not talking about negative circumstances. I'm talking about positive circumstances. If that stock rapidly and extensively exceeds its valuation to a very high degree, then you should sell it. Because you're going to have better opportunities in the future by having that money in other investments. Now, I can't say clearly in advance what point that sell point should be. That should be in what your investment thesis is. And it's going to be unique to every company. But you really need to consider that there is a point at which every stock should be sold and chosen to invest in another thing. There's no stock that should never be sold under any circumstances. And so you need to really think about what those boundaries are, because if you're able to achieve an incredibly high total return in a short time period, it can become possible that no matter how much you liked the investment to start with, that the new move that is best for your performance is to sell that stock. So, The next point I want to touch on is that the methods by which you earn a high long-term compound annual growth rate might be different from how you achieve a short-term high total return. So here, I'm taking a different step. So in the first all-else equal consideration, I talked about long-term thinking. And that does play into how I believe you can earn a high long-term compound annual growth rate. What I'm saying might help you achieve short-term high total returns is that there are alternative methods of doing that. I think that there are very clearly ways in which people have found to make money in the market, whether that's the stock market, the bond market, real estate, um, anything, whether that's investing in commodities, investing in futures, trading, um, technicals, momentum, growth, value. There's all different methods out there where some people have found to make money, and some of those are better over shorter time periods, and some of those are better over longer time periods. Some of them are more reliable than others. Some of them have more evidence behind them. But what I'm trying to say is is that if your goal is a high long-term compound annual growth rate, that doesn't necessarily mean, and this first principle is not suggesting that the way you receive a high long-term compound annual growth rate is by achieving a lot of short-term returns. I don't think that's true. I don't think you should be seeking out investments where you can make double your money in a month because I don't believe that's a reliable investment. I don't believe that by trading and by here I'm saying trading and investing are two different things. Investing, What you're trying to do is make money off of the business by being a part owner of businesses. And those businesses produce earnings by selling products and producing services that provide value to the marketplace. Trading is the exchanging of pieces of paper from one person to another and trying to make a money off the difference. You're trying to find someone else that's willing to pay you more for your piece of paper than what you paid for it. This is the classic buy low, sell high. Trading relies upon changes in sentiment, changes in the marketplace. This relies, this is what would be known as like technicals, looking at technical trading, stuff like momentum. Relies on this fact on judging, judging market psychology, judging when things are gonna change, what catalysts are out there. And I'm not recommending trading. I am a big proponent of investing. I believe that you should make your money by being long-term owners in companies, being a part owner in those companies, and per- earning money because those companies are adding value to the economy. However, the point of this investing first principle is that you must recognize that your holding period is important. You should enter your investments with the plan to earn the money over time by the Business analysis, looking at the fundamentals of the business and saying this business is safe, this business has protection against downside risk, this business has the ability to grow its earnings over the time, this business provides value to society, this business provides value to customers, it's valued by its customers, and you should, I want to be an owner of that business, because that business is a good value, that's what I recommend, but Even when you do that, you must recognize that other people are going to value your business differently. They're going to look at it differently than you. And you should take advantage of the opportunities when that occurs and when your valuation is below that of what the market price is. So if you buy a stock at $50 per share and you believe the stock is worth $100 per share, if the stock goes up to $250 per share and you believe that the only way that you can earn a 10% return in that company is by buying it at $100 per share or less, then if it's at $250 per share, you're not gonna be able to earn your return going forward by remaining in that company. You need to reevaluate and you need to look at selling that stock and finding another company that can then earn you those returns. Now, if the stock has gone up 5x from 50 to 250, you might want to consider that maybe you were wrong in your assessment. Maybe it is worth more. You should look at your assumptions and really understand, is the company better than you thought? That should be part of your process. But if the market rewards you by happenstance and chance with a high total return over a very short period, you need to remember that short holding periods can lead to greater compound annual growth rates if you're achieving the same return. So when stocks get ahead of themselves, when a stock is pricing in 5, 10, 15 years of future growth in order to be worth what it's priced at, you need to recognize that now you have additional risk. Now you have the risk that 10 years from now, the stock price might not be any higher than it is today because it's going to take 10 years for the earnings to catch up to its current price. And so when the market rewards you with happenstance and chance and gives you better than expected annual returns, take advantage of it because you can recognize that the shorter holding period is better for you, assuming you're able to find other investments. And so recognize I'm not exactly recommending selling your investments and going to cash. I'm just saying you should be aware that the attractiveness of your investments is directly linked to the price. So as the price goes down, the attractiveness of your investment should increase. And as the price goes up, the attractiveness should decrease. And that there's a tipping point by which the investments that you have are no longer as attractive as other investments that you might be able to put that money into it is important you understand where that line is and you should always be seeking to better understand both those companies you own and the new companies out there because you could increase your returns when you're able to take a company that's overvalued, sell it, and buy a company that's undervalued. The next point I want to talk about is that in the long run, the long term is simply made up of many short term periods. When we talk about a 30 or 40 investment period, 30 or 40 year investment time horizon, you're talking about periods that you have 10 different periods that are made up of three years each, or you have eight or you have six periods that are made up of five years each. Although you might plan to hold things for 30 years, it might make sense to sell it after three or to sell it after five. Because that optimizes your return over that five-year time frame, and you might then look to see what is most important for optimizing your return over the next five-year time frame. Now, where that doesn't work as well is when you're talking about even shorter time periods. I'm not saying that the way to earn good returns over a three-year period is to optimize every two-week period. That's not what I'm saying at all. There's a crossover point where you're unable to make predictions about how likely the market is to respond What's going, to what's going on. And I believe that time frame is really, you need to hit the three to five year time marker before you can start to rely on the fact that your analysis is driving the results of your stocks. And so if you're trying to make decisions on a week by week basis, let alone a day by day or hour by hour basis, you're not thinking clearly in the way That is based upon first principles. It's not based upon what you can back up with data in how the investments are performing in the underlying business. You might see a stock price change 10% in one day. But it's highly unlikely that the business is changing 10% in that same day. Just as when the stock price goes up half a percent one day and down 2% the next day, the business isn't changing that often. That's just investor psychology. So you need to be aware of that and you need to understand what's going into that. And this leads me to my last key point on where there's an all else equal consideration. And that's this idea that there's a difference between value and growth investing. Now, I personally believe that all investing is value investing. If people say they're growth investors, if people say they're value investors, I believe that all investing at its core, if done properly, is the idea of value investing, where value investing is buying something for less than it's worth. So something is worth a dollar, you're trying to pay 70 cents or less for it. That's what value investing is. Now, the mainstream pundits would like to tell you that there's a difference, and they'll say something like, well, value investors are trying to buy um, cheap companies that don't grow, and that have a lot of cash flow. And growth investors want to buy companies that are growing their earnings very quickly or growing their revenue very quickly. And while some people think that way, that's not how I think. How I think is that there's no difference between them. There are times where it makes sense to buy a company at a 30 times PE ratio, because it is undervalued at a 30 times PE ratio, because it's earnings are growing so fast that it is worth it, and that is a value investment if the future earnings can be reliably predicted. In the same way, it's also a value investment if you buy a stock at five times PE ratio because the current earnings are high and they're likely to stay high. Those can both be value investing, even though the 30 PE company will generally be called a growth investment and the 5 PE company will generally be called a value investment. That's not how I want you to think because it's not how I think. I think very much that value investing is very simple. All you're trying to do is pay less than what something is worth. You know, Warren Buffett likes to use the phrase of buying a dollar bill with three quarters. That's a great way of thinking about it. You're All you're trying to do is pay less than a dollar to purchase dollar bills. And those dollar bills might come in the future or they might come in the present. And growth investments are dollar bills that come in the future, and and the so-called mainstream value investments are those that come in the present. But there shouldn't be any difference between them. However, I do wanna highlight some of the key differences here because it plays into this first principle about holding periods. You see, the traditional Benjamin Graham, father of value investing, his philosophy was the result of harnessing the power of what's called mean reversion. Now, mean reversion is a mental model whereby basically things, whether it's statistics, earnings, revenue, prices they come back to their average over time. So you might have fluctuations, and so earnings might go higher than average for a period of years, and then it'll come back towards its average over time, either due to competition or something else. Um, prices might, a company might become undervalued for a few years, and then it'll come back to average and come back to, to its actual value after a few years. This is all the concept of mean reversion that things revert back to their long-term averages over time. So the key point is is that Benjamin Graham harnessed this mental model of mean reversion in his value investing philosophy because his goal was to earn high total returns over short time frames of about 3 to 5 years. Now He used this in what is called his net-net strategy. So he was trying to buy companies that were trading for less than the cash or the working capital that the stock held on, that the company had on its books. And what he wanted to do was to buy a company at a 30 to 35% discount to its fair value or to its cash and to sell it when the stock price reached its fair value or exceeded its cash pile. And... His goal was that the shorter time period over which this occurred, the more profitable his investment. Because when it reached fair value, because he bought it at a 30 to 35% discount, he would have a 50% gain. Now, what is that 50% gain over those time periods? Well, if you get a 50% gain over five years, that's approximately, but not exactly, like a 10% return each year. But if you have that 50% gain over three years, now you're talking a 15% gain per year. So that makes a huge difference. And if he was able to get that return in one year, now he's got a 50% annualized gain. And all of that harnesses the power of mean reversion. You see, Benjamin Graham was unable to predict, and he admitted this, he's not able to predict when an individual company would reach its fair value again. All he would predict is that it was highly likely to occur at the future. You know, if a company was profitable and it was trading for less than the cash that it had in the bank, then it made perfect sense that for some time in the future, it would trade at least for the cash that it had in the bank because it was profitable in producing more cash each and every year. And this strategy worked. It's a, it's known historically, and currently is one of the highest returning investment strategies you can harness if you're able to find enough net-net investments. We're talking annualized returns of greater than 20%. The problem these days is that most of the time you can't find net-nets, at least not profitable net-nets, trading in the United States because this strategy has become so well-known and it's been competed out. Obviously, they still exist at times, and they particularly exist usually during large market drawdowns like the 2009 financial crisis. But what I'm focusing on is that this strategy of investing harnessed the power of mean reversion. Which brings me to Warren Buffett, and Warren Buffett used to use Benjamin Graham's strategy when he was managing small investment portfolios. But as his size of his portfolio grew over time, he switched, and he is currently an advocate for buy and hold investing. And this is why I mentioned buy and hold in the beginning, because even Warren Buffett will tell you that using Benjamin Graham's value investing strategy is highly effective at small points of capital and is likely to get higher returns than the strategy he's currently using. But the key is is that Warren Buffett is primarily earning his returns due to long-term growth investments in earnings over time. And this is where I said that value versus growth is a misnomer because Warren Buffett, a famous advocate for value investing, primarily earns his money through growth investments. So how does that make sense? And it makes sense because instead of harnessing mean reversion, Warren Buffett is harnessing returns through moats what he realizes is he can focus on high-quality companies and that the longer they have profitable growth, high profitable growth of earnings per share, the higher returns he can earn over time. And this is driven by moats and a high return on incremental invested capital. You see, if a company can earn high returns on invested capital, if it can invest that capital each year and can invest a lot of capital each year, then it's able to grow its earnings rapidly over time. And if you can grow your earnings per share faster than your discount rate for many, many, many years in the future, you can have a very high return over and over and over again without having to find new investments. And this is a strategy that's particularly well suited for having large amounts of money. But what I'm trying to illustrate is because he's a buy and hold investor, mean reversion is irrelevant to Warren Buffett. It doesn't matter to him whether a company is going from undervalued to overvalued. In fact, what he talks about a lot is buying wonderful companies at fair value, which means he no longer uses the idea of mean reversion, which means that for him, he's left beside this shorter holding periods are better because what he's trying to do is recognize that he no longer has the right amount of money to harness this investing first principle. He's not negating this first principle, but he's simply recognizing that it's one that only investors with smaller amounts of money, which I would assume is basically anyone listening to this podcast, are ones that can actually use a mean reversion-based strategy. Which leads me to when we think about mean reversion, why was this planned over a time frame of three to five years? Well, although Benjamin Graham could not predict when his investments would work out, what he realized is that they would generally mean revert within about three to five years. And most of them would mean revert within about three years. Three years was a general time frame by which Benjamin Graham would recognize that the market psychology around a company would change new investors would come in would find it new investors would value it and consider bidding up the price until it reached a fair value now again this is an average but on average he found that this 3 years or even up to about 5 years was a long enough time frame by which you could go through the full cycle of negativity um Despair as a company you know bottomed in the marketplace and then di- what the next step was being disregarded and then after that you have new investors finding it, starting to re- to revalue it, starting to see it in a different light, and then the price should rise over time as those as the sentiment and the story around a company changed, and that time frame doesn't take a year it doesn't take six months. It takes a period of time, and what he's just found is that on average is about three to five years. That's not to say he sold every company after three to five years. Some companies were sold in very short periods of time, like my example where I sold mine after three months. And some companies were sold after longer periods of time, if it took longer for them to reach their fair value method. Benjamin Graham couldn't predict it, which is why he advocated wide diversification so that you could harness the gains when they appeared and investing in many companies because he wasn't trying to focus on which companies were better or which companies were worse. He was just trying to hit that net net strategy. So I want to wrap this up by reiterating that shorting, ho- shorter holding periods are a viable, better, shorter holding periods are better and this is an investing first principle when you look at the same total result, return result because the shorting holder, shorter holding period for the same total return results in a better compound annual growth rate. So the key question, is the brevity of your holding period within your control? And I would argue that it is not. While reversion to the mean is powerful and can be a huge driver of high returns, you should always be making your investments with a long-term time horizon. As Warren Buffett would advise, don't invest in a company if you aren't at least willing to hold it for 10 years. You might be surprised with a shorter holding period, but don't expect it. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 35. This is a listener-supported podcast, and you can support me today by leaving me a rating or review in your podcast player. Just open up your podcast app, click on DIY Investing Podcast, and leave me a rating or review. I would really appreciate it because your ratings are the only way that this show can grow and reach more people. So please consider leaving me a rating and review. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth.